and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fosbero. Holocaust Memorial Day has just been marked, a moment to remember the millions of people murdered in the Holocaust under Nazi persecution and in the genocides which followed in Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia and Darfur. In 1941, the Nazis and their collaborators began the systematic murder of Europe's Jews. By the end of World War II in 1945, it's estimated 6 million Jewish men, women and children had been murdered in ghettos, mass shootings, concentration camps and extermination camps. The Holocaust destroyed centuries-old Jewish communities and cultures in Central and Eastern Europe, shaking the foundations of modern-day civilization. John Haidu is a survivor of the Holocaust in Hungary and author of Life in Two Countries, a book about his experiences. He was about four years old in 1941 when Hungary joined the war and life for Hungary's Jewish population became more restricted as anti-Semitism took hold. His parents both survived concentration camps and after the war he lived with his mother under the subsequent socialist regime in Budapest. John came to England as a 20-year-old refugee in 1957 wearing clothes given to him in Vienna, speaking little English forced to make his way in an unknown new world. And England has remained John's home. Today I'm at John's house in North London for a cup of tea and a shortbread biscuit to hear some of his and his family's remarkable stories of resilience and survival. John, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. You've taken me by surprise because as I sat down, you've handed me a beautiful portrait of yourself that's just been taken by Rankin. Tell me about this extraordinary photograph. Thank you for asking me to talk to you. The more I talk about my experience, the more important it is that more and more people hear about my experience and spread it around and make sure that what I went through should not happen again. I work with the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust as well as the Holocaust Educational Trust in order to go out and talk to as many people as possible. And about six months ago, I was asked by the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust to attend a studio in Kentish Town in North London because they wanted to take a photo of me. I had no idea what this was all about or why I was particularly chosen. When I arrived, I realized that what happened was that I represented just uh, survivors of uh, not just the uh, Hungarian, but also the German, the Polish atrocities. And there was one uh, lady from uh, Sudan and somebody else from Asia. And so when I was taken into the uh, studio, I realized that I am in Rankin's studio. Everybody knows Rankin and I was extremely surprised that he actually agreed to take a photo of me. Then he said to me, look, I'm not taking a photo until you tell me your story because I want to understand what you are about. And I try to reflect that in the photo you are going to have here today. Having told him the story, there's 10 people around him, all part of his team, he said, okay, I now know what I want to do. And you have your teddy with you? I said, yes, I do. Now, this is the teddy which I have had since I was three years old. And I had it with me through the Nazi atrocities as well as the Soviet um, occupation. And when I escaped from Hungary through the minefields in October 1956, and I still have it with me. So he said, no, I want the photo with you and Teddy because that reflects your life. And he did just that. He took about 10 photos and he chose one, which is not a funny photo, it's not a smiley photo, 
but it reflects exactly what happened to me. Gosh, what an honour to be photographed by Rankin. Indeed. And how lovely that he wanted to listen to your story first. What kind of things did you tell him, John, when you were trying to sum up your story before the photo shoot? Well, I was born in Budapest in Hungary to a reasonably well-to-do family. My father and grandfather were both directors of an insurance company and my mother was a bookkeeper. And we lived a reasonably happy life. We had friends who were both Jewish and non-Jewish, and uh, we went to cinemas and theatres. And it seemed that uh, there was no reason why we should carry on living this kind of life for some time to come. It's interesting to know that Hungary is a small country in the middle of Europe, Eastern Europe, in fact. It has a population of 10 million, which is almost the same as London. And at that time, there were 450,000 Jews in Hungary, and 23% were actually resident in Budapest. So it's a very large proportion. And what happened next, of course, is that due to pressure from the popular far-right anti-Semitic fascist party modeled on the Nazi Germany, Nazi party in Germany, the Hungarian government decided in 1939 to prohibit Jews from running their own companies. And that was the first sign that lives and movements of the Jews was becoming much more uh, restricted. And then, of course, 1941, as you said, uh, Hungary entered the war, allied to Nazi Germany, and everything changed. Marriage was forbidden between Jews and non-Jews. Uh, you couldn't become a teacher or a journalist or a lawyer. And you couldn't go into a hotel or a restaurant or use cars, taxis, or trains. And from that time on, the Jews really had a very bad time. And what do you remember, John, from that time around 1941? Because, of course, at that point, you were still a very small boy. What memories do you have of what seemed a comfortable and happy life changing? How do you recall those changes? Well, I was only four years old, and it's very difficult to remember anything. What does a four-year-old boy remember from a previous life? I would have said very little. Maybe the memories are simply the fact that everybody was sad. Everybody was worried. Nobody seemed to know what's happening next. Our lives have been restricted and were changing from day to day. But that's probably all I can remember. And I wonder if some of those memories are perhaps stories that were told to you later on, perhaps, by your mum when things had moved on and you got mum back. So perhaps some of those memories are things that were told to you by family members. It's difficult, isn't it, to work out what were memories and perhaps what was told to you about that time. Do you remember that at that time, I think, Jewish people were forced to wear a yellow star, weren't they? Yes, that was a little bit later. It was in 1943, by which time I was, what, seven years old, that my father was taken to a forced labor camp. And I certainly remember that because mother and I had to visit him with food parcels. Because in the forced labor camps, there was hardly any food. They were beaten, some died, and not everybody survived. So I remember quite well taking the train and going to this labor camp just for a few minutes to see him and then come back and carry on with our lives. So that's the first active memory, I suppose, I have of what was going on. 
The next time I think I remembered anything seriously bad or wrong has happened to me was in March 1944, because that's when the Yellow Star Order was given, when the Germans actually occupied Hungary. And what has happened then, that we had to wear a yellow star on our clothes. As a seven-year-old, it was a bit unusual for me to have a yellow star on my clothing, but I don't think I understood the seriousness of what actually was going on. But that, of course, got much worse because the next step was that we had to move into a yellow star block of flats, which meant that there was a yellow star on the block of flats door gate, and everybody knew that inside were Jews. And we were only allowed out for an hour and a half to two hours to queue for food, and we had no time to do anything else. Queuing for food meant that you were not allowed to buy anything like butter or eggs or rice, for example. So even that was restricted to a great extent. In fact, even radios were confiscated. And by that time, all Jewish banks were also frozen. Now, this Jewish house, this yellow star house, was where my mother, my aunt, and I were staying. And because by that time, all the men had been taken away, it was a turn of the women. So when the uh, Nazi party and uh, the Hungarian Arrowcross party came round to collect, to herd together all the uh, women, they came from block to block, floor to floor, flat to flat. And it was turn of my mother. And so she was taken downstairs into the courtyard. And my aunt realized what was going on. She grabbed me and rushed me across the corridor to a non-Jewish man's flat who very kindly agreed to hide us in his cupboard. Now, if you think about this, if anybody would have noticed this, all three of us would have been shot, the owner of that flat, my aunt and I. So there we were in a cupboard, hidden in the dark, and told to keep as quiet as possible in order to survive. Now, you can imagine that a seven-year-old boy being hidden in a cupboard was frightening. It was incredible. I don't think I can even explain to you the feelings of a young boy, but it was something I shall never forget. Was your little teddy bear with you in that cupboard? He was certainly in the flat. I don't remember if I took him into the cupboard, but I certainly recovered him after we had been in the cupboard if he wasn't with me. It's very difficult, John, to take in that this is in our living memory and here you sit and that was your childhood and I just can't imagine it. It's so important that you get out there like you do and that you talk to people and that you talk to schools. I mean, this must never be forgotten and never happen again. I can imagine it's really important to you that your story and, and that of other survivors continues to be told and is documented. Well, in fact, things got worse when we had to move into the ghetto. I think it's important that uh, people understand that the Yellow Star block of flats was really almost like a holiday compared to moving into the ghetto. Because after all, the ghetto was a walled area of about 50,000 Jews in about 290 buildings and about 20 people in each flat where we had hardly any food. We had horse meat or 
drippings. I don't know what we ate. Buckets of water were brought up from uh, downstairs. There were dead bodies on the pavements. People were dying of typhoid or dysentery. So that was probably the worst so far of my life. And then when we stayed in the ghetto for some time, the Soviet Air Force was approaching by then and they bombarded the town. And in fact, our building was hit. And fortunately, we were in the cellar hiding. And so we survived. And then the Soviets actually arrived in Budapest and freed us in the ghetto. And that was on the 17th of January, 1945. And what's important here, that the Germans mined the ghetto in order to blow us all up. But fortunately, because of the rapid advancing of the Soviets, they didn't have time. So again, this was the second time I survived, first in the cupboard and now in the ghetto. Just going back to the cupboard, John, how long were you there and what kind of things did your aunt say to you to explain what was going on and why you had to be quiet and why you were hidden in a cupboard? Well, the first point is that she couldn't say anything because you had to be quiet. But I would say it was probably around half an hour to an hour. It certainly seemed like ages. Uh, it's very difficult to figure out how long I was staying there. And this is what I always say when I give talks. Try going to a cupboard, stay there in the dark and see how long you can stay there without starting to worry what's happening to you, without getting frightened. So I would say it's less than an hour maybe. And my aunt and this very kind man told us before we moved into the cupboard not to say a word because our life depended on it. And in the ghetto, weren't there about 20 or 25 people per tiny apartment? That's it right. sounds like it was very crowded. As you say, food was very scarce, wasn't it? That's right. It, it was a period of my life, which I shall always remember as probably being the worst of my young life, because not only were there people dying in the flats around me, you can imagine the smell, but also looking out, the street was lined with dead bodies. And you couldn't go out because as soon as you got out, you could have been shot. So that is what I remember. And at that stage, John, did you know what had happened to your mother? Because she'd been taken away, hadn't she? Did you know where she'd been taken to or whether she was okay or still alive? No, we had absolutely no idea where my father was, who was in a forced labor camp, whether he survived or not. And no, I had no idea where my mother was taken. And we presumed that she died in whichever camp she went to. Gosh, you just can't imagine that, no, can you? Can't. I mean, you were such a small child going but through all exactly. of that. And that's what happened next. Because when we came out of the ghetto into a totally ruined town, buildings from fire, demolished. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what we were going to do. That's how my aunt and I. And we found out from a relative or a neighbor, I can't remember, or even uh, an acquaintance, that my father and my uncle escaped to neighboring Romania, uh, to a Hungarian part, because Romania used to belong to the Hungarian Republic, if you like, in, in the older times. And the Soviets have freed Romania before they came to Hungary. So that's why my father and my uncle went there, because they had a friend living there. And they started a small shop there. And that's where I went with my aunt. And in fact, I went to a school there 
and started to live reasonably normal life, not knowing what happened to my mother. By that time, of course, we heard rumors that uh, people in concentration camps died. And of course, the next thing what happened was that my mother suddenly turned up on the door, which coming back from the dead meant that it was a huge surprise to all of us. It was a wonderful moment, but it created all kinds of problems because my father has started a relationship with a local woman because obviously he thought that my mother has died. So when my mother saw that, she decided that there's no way that she can leave me there. So she took me back to Budapest and we had to start yet another life, if you like. All over again. Yeah. And how old were you, John, when mum turned up at the door? Roughly, how old well, were you? Seven. I was just coming up to eight. So still such a young boy. And what had happened to her? Had she been in a concentration camp and had she gone through some very tough times? She was beaten, her hair fell out, her teeth were smashed, her back was broken. Mentally, she never recovered even many, many years afterwards. And it's very interesting that she never talked about it. People who uh, suffered so much never wanted to talk about what happened to them. And even years after asking questions, she would not discuss what happened to her, how she survived. It's a miracle that she was just some of the few who survived when thousands have died in the concentration camp. So how did you manage to find out a little bit of what had happened? Was she able to tell you just small amounts, but just didn't want to go into too much detail? Most of what I found out was of historical records of the time. I didn't talk to anybody who was in the camp, and my only contact was my mother, and she wouldn't talk about it. So I gathered together the information from eyewitnesses, from historical background and books. And that's what I based that story on. I wonder, John, if that's all about survival and that people don't feel able to or want to talk about what they went through because that's how they managed to survive such atrocities, perhaps. It could be. Uh, It's a possibility. I can't really answer that question because... History repeated itself later in my life when I decided to write my book much later. Until then, I didn't want to talk about what happened to me. So in a way, this is exactly what my mother must have gone through. And it's only later that when I started researching my family tree, I started thinking about it more in depth. And it occurred to me that maybe it's important that I write down what happened to me, not just for me, but for my children and grandchildren. And the material in the book is very interesting story again, because when I escaped from Hungary during the 1956 revolution, we had to just lock the door of the flat and apart from the bag of food and my teddy, we had nothing. But my aunt, who was still in Budapest, decided to go into our flat and collected all the photos and documents. And later she came out to England and gave it to me. And that's the basis of my book. Gosh. And in a way, John, life in two countries, I'm looking at a copy of it now with the two flags, Hungary and Britain on the front. 
Was it a cathartic process in some ways, sitting down and going through your memories and going through the documents and trying to piece together your story? It was a very strange three years. It was published in 2012. Yes, it's four years it took me. It was not an easy story, not an easy process, because as you quite rightly say, it does bring back memories. It does make you think what you've been through, and it does make you think of what you left behind and how many times you escaped death. So yes, it did take some time to be able to put it all together, write it down, and eventually publish it. Before the revolution, John, when mum came back and you were around eight years old, did life get back to some kind of normal at that point for a while for you? All right. So if you are talking about, say, um, early 1950s or so, which is when the People's Democratic Republic was ruling Hungary, it was a communist regime, basically. Uh, life was very hard. I was 14 years old in 1951. We had very little money and we had to survive on very little food and monotonous and unhealthy way of living. Just to give you an example, there were no fridges. So we had to bring back blocks of ice from the uh, neighboring market, take it upstairs and put it in the ice box in the kitchen. And the same happened with wood. We had to collect wood, keep it in our cellar and bring it upstairs to put it in the stove. And that's how we lived. The other problem was that because I was Jewish and from a middle-class family, I couldn't go to university, having finished my previous schooling. And it was only because I knew one of the teachers at the technical college that I was able to continue my education when I was 14, 15. And I ended up in a college called Hungarian Highways and Railway Technical College, which is nothing like what I wanted to do. And then after that, when did you decide to come to England? Because when you arrived here, as I said in the introduction, you arrived in the clothes you were standing in that had been given to you from Vienna. You arrived really with nothing to create a new life, John. What made you escape and come to England? And what was that journey like to get here? It was in October 1956, the famous October 1956, when the Hungarian students had enough and they decided that life cannot go on anymore the way it has been going on. Very brave of the Hungarian students to do that. And they gathered on the streets and they marched and made speeches and eventually ended up in front of the Hungarian Broadcasting Company and announced that they want to... Um, present a 16-point manifesto demanding the formation of a Hungarian, new Hungary, an independent Hungary, and they demanded free elections. And that was a very brave thing to do. And that was probably the main reason why the subsequent uprising took place in October, 23rd of October, 1956. And so a new government was sworn in and everybody thought that, oh, this is wonderful. We are starting a new life and the Soviets have gone and this is going to be a totally new way of living. This was, of course, not the case. And to give you an example, we lived only a few minutes from Parliament Square where a huge crowd of 200,000 gathered to demand to see the new prime minister, 
just to demonstrate the joy of having a new government. And I was among these 200,000 people. And after a time, I heard some shots and I thought, I don't like this, I go home. We then found out afterwards, the police allied to the uh, Soviets was already placed on top of the uh, surrounding buildings. They knew exactly what was going on. They ordered the crowd to disperse. Nobody moved. So they started shooting. Eventually, when the square cleared, they found over 2,000 Hungarians' bodies. And even next day, day after, there were clothing, shoes, and pools of blood on the square. So here was another example of how my life was saved for the third time. I can't even explain what feeling I had. By this time, Soviets, of course, started the complete surrounding of Budapest, Hungary, and they stormed the streets. And it became quite clear that by November 1956, the Soviets were in charge and over 2,000 Hungarians were dead by that time. And is this at the point, John, where you realised that you needed to escape? Yes, we realised that we have no future in Hungary. And no future, especially if you wanted to make something of yourself outside the Soviet regime, not being controlled by the Soviet regime. And so I decided with a friend of mine that the only way out of this is to escape. By that time, quite a few people were escaping to Austria. And because I was working on the railways immediately after college, I had free tickets. So I told my mother that that's what I want to do. And she said she would come with us, which was very courageous of her, but she wouldn't leave me, uh, having been without me for so long in uh, the 40s. So that's what we did. We decided that in November, I think it was November 20th that we decided to escape. That's another story. Our flat was in the Pest side and the train goes from the Buddha side. So you had to cross the river. But the bridges were guarded by the police. And if they would have felt that you were escaping, you would have been immediately arrested. So that is why when we closed the flat and left with only a bag of food and my teddy, we were able to cross the river. And so the next morning, we took the train with my free tickets towards Austria. And near the border, we got off the train, by which time many Hungarians were doing the same. Fortunately, at this station, there were no police or no supervision. So we were able to start our journey towards Austria. We had no idea where we were going. So what uh, the very clever local peasants were doing is that they said, just give us your jewelry or money and we'll tell you which way to go. And this is what everybody had to do. And we were directed towards the border. It was a very cold winter. It was ice everywhere. And we had to go through minefields. It was at night, crawling through mud, hiding in the woods, climbing over canals and avoiding tanks and searchlights. And that's how we got to the border. We must have walked about 25 miles in total before we got to the Austrian border. And we were again very lucky because we got to the border next to an unmanned watchtower. Now, if that tower would have been manned, we would have not got across to Austria. Many people didn't make it and got either captured or shot. 
And so here we were in freedom uh, in Austria. How sad did it feel, John, at this point that, you know, you born in Hungary and Hungary is your home country, that you just have to leave and shut the door with a bag of food and your lovely little teddy bear who sits on the table right now. So that's it. You have no choice but to go. Well, that's the point. We had no choice. We had no chance of thinking about it. We had no chance to consider whether it was good, bad, sad or not sad. We went. It didn't occur to me until many years later what I have actually done and what many others have done. It was a matter of courage, I think. You had no choice, but you had to take your life into your hands and go. Because if you didn't, you don't know what you've ended up with. And in fact, there's another interesting story here. Many years later, I went back for a class reunion. And apart from me, there was only one other person from overseas, the friend who escaped with us, who stayed in Austria. And we went back to Budapest to this class, class reunion. And when you looked at these class members, you saw how sad they were, how badly dressed they were, no future, no past. They just lived from one day to another. It was an eye-opener. Yeah, I can imagine. And it sounds as if life in England and the UK has, has been very happy for you. So I'm glad that you've enjoyed happiness here. I've met Maureen, your lovely wife, when we arrived. But just thinking back to the moment when mm -hmm. you arrived in England, whereabouts in England did you arrive? And do you remember at that point what it felt like just turning up here with this whole new adventure in front of you and not really knowing, presumably, what to expect, how you'd be received, where you'd go, what you would do job-wise, etc.? It was all a mystery, really, at that point, wasn't it? Going back to Austria, where we stayed in a camp, where we were looked after by the locals, given food and given clothing, I heard that in Vienna, you can go and queue outside the British Embassy in order to get permission to come to this country. So I did just that. My mother was with me at that time. And I queued outside the British Embassy for a couple of days, I think. And I got one of the last permits to come to this country. Uh, it was in January 1957. We were told that I've got two hours to get to the train station, which will take us to Ostend in Belgium and then across by boat to England. And I was 20 years old. And that was the first time I saw the sea. Uh, you can imagine what an unforgettable experience that is. Suddenly you're standing in, on the ship and looking out and you see the sea and you see Dover coming up. It was an incredible experience. And so when we arrived to Dover, we were then put on a train and taken to a Cannock Chase in the north of England, where it was a disused army camp, where we were given again food and clothing and because I spoke some English, I looked after some incoming Hungarians twice a week, explained to them what's going on. And it kind of built up my strength and my courage. And I found out that there was a small camp, because this was hundreds and hundreds of us, a smaller facility to look after some Hungarians in Sussex, in near East Grinstead. So I thought, well, I will ask apply whether my mother and I can go there. Fortunately, we were given permission to be transported to East Grinstead. And it was a disused, very old home. And that was the first time that I was able to relax and enjoy life and actually figure out 
what I might want to do next. And because that was only an hour away from London, I decided to come to London and find out what life is about. And you can imagine suddenly appearing in London, a town huge, I've never seen anything like it before, totally overwhelmed. Fortunately, all the local organizations, uh, Jewish Refugee Committee and various others, looked after us, gave us money, gave us clothing, and eventually found us somewhere to live. And did you feel that England embraced you and gave you a warm welcome and somewhere that you would feel safe and that you could start to create a new life for yourself? Absolutely no question about it. I will always be grateful to the help I got into this country. And that is another reason why I have achieved so much and why I'm giving back so much, because I'm very grateful for what I was given on arriving here. John, when you go to schools and you deliver talks to various organizations, I'm particularly interested to know how children react to your story. I've been doing this for about five years now, and quite often the classes are about 100, 200 kids. And as soon as I start talking, there's dead silence in the hall. And I have slides as well. I have about 20 odd slides, which I use illustrating my talk my youth, my escape, various points in my life. And my talk is about 35, 40 minutes long. And I try to go through everything I have been through. I am always amazed, surprised, and happy to hear so many questions from kids who are 14, 15 years old, how interested they are in what I have said and how curious they are to find out more about my life. What are the kind of questions that they tend to ask, John? Question always comes up, what was it like in the cupboard when I was hidden? The next question was all about Teddy, how long have I had it and what happened to him and where is he now? He's on my desk now, by the way, and my family know about it. The other questions which come up are, did I go back to Hungary after I escaped? Which is a very good question. And I always explain that until I have asked for my nationality to become British subject, I didn't want to go back. So it was August 1962 when I became British subject, which was a huge, huge thing for me. Then I renounced my Hungarian citizenship. And only then I decided to go back because until then I was afraid to do so. So having gone back, I still have some cousins there, by the way. I looked at the town, which was it's even in the 70s, in a terrible state, bullet holes still around, buildings still crumbling. I didn't like it very much. I wanted to see the ghetto again. I wanted to see the Yellow Star House again, the synagogue where I used to live. And I thought, no, I now need to bring the family back. So I brought the family back later on, first all four of us, then my son on his own, and then my daughter on her own. And that way, I managed to make them understand what I have gone through. Because surprisingly, it took years for both my son and daughter to understand. Even my wife found it difficult to understand what I have gone through and the chronology of the whole thing. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it. So that comes up when kids ask questions. Why did you go back? When did you go back? And how did you feel? And this is the very interesting question. And when you took your children back, 
were the remains of the ghetto still there, the Yellow Star House? Could you show them oh, yes. areas where you'd lived and survived? Absolutely. I've got a photo of the house where I was in the ghetto. And that is one of the photos I show the kids. And the Yellow Star block of flats, yes, still there. And I took them around and showed them. The other thing which kids get very excited about is two of the slides are the dead bodies and the tanks surrounding the square when I escaped. And when I get there, I say to them, now stop for a minute, look at those two slides, and then look at the news. That is exactly what is going on in the Ukraine today by the same people who did it to me in the 50s. And that is something I explain every time to make them understand that history repeated itself. Do you think that helps perhaps bring it home to them that there we are in 2023, turning the news on, seeing the kinds of scenes that you're describing that as we do this chat, one's hoping we'll never see again. But as you say, it's in the news every day still, isn't it? Exactly. And this is the reason I give talks. That's one of the reasons I give talks, not only because I want to tell them my story, but also to explain that atrocities are going on around the world. And amazingly, there are over 2,000 anti-Semitic incidents every year in this country, still. It's quite frightening to think that we're Absolutely. still in that situation. And, and it's not a story really from the past that you're telling because exactly. it has relevance today. The other reason I always say to the kids when they ask me about the book, I say, well, I wrote it partly because I wanted my family to have something. And by the way, the book is now in the Jewish Museum. It's in the Holocaust Museum in, uh, in London. It's in the Wiener Library. It's in several places. But one of the reasons is for the family to have it. But the second reason is that people usually talk about what happened in Poland and Germany. Very few people talk about what happened in Hungary because it's a small country. But we suffered as much as any other country. And I want to highlight this when I talk. And then the main reason is that I want as many people as possible to read this or listen to my talks to try to make sure that such atrocities should never happen again. And when you watch the news, John, now you're 85 years old and you watch the scenes that are going on in Ukraine, I just can't imagine how that makes you feel all these years on that we're still witnessing such pain and such unnecessary suffering. It's very difficult to talk about it. In fact, I try not to watch it when that comes on in the news because it brings back so many terrible memories uh, that I can't even talk about it. When I look at these poor people in the Ukraine and I see exactly what happened to us, the ruined buildings, the whole infrastructure gone, people dying, seeing dead bodies, exactly the same. So I find it very difficult to cope with that. Your children, your son and your daughter, how young were they when you started to unravel your story and, and share it with them? You say it took a long time Absolutely. for them to get the whole picture, but did you start telling them about your background when they were quite young? Well, they are now in their 40s. So you can imagine that it took a long time before they understood. In fact, I took my daughter yesterday to one of my talks in a local synagogue and she was quite emotional about it, even though she has seen it before heard it before and read the book, even now she found it difficult to listen to it. I'm sure. I don't want to leave without asking Teddy's story and how long he's been with you. And he's sitting there just by the microphone, actually. He's very sweet. He's very tiny, isn't he? What, what oh, did indeed. you say? About 
Six or the less than inches, so like a less extended palm. Yeah, he's beautiful. Well, he's coming apart, unfortunately. <laughs> so he's got little little moving joints, has he? Moving yeah, arms yeah. and moving legs. I take it to all my talks, and uh, he's getting very worn and very tired. And who gave him to you, John? Do you remember? It must have been my parents. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, very difficult. By the way, when I stand in front of the kids, I always say to them, "Look, I am living history." You see in front of you something which happened in life. So try to understand that I'm talking to you from life. It's not from a book. It's not from a film. That is real. And have you had and still have, obviously, a happy life here? How did life unfold for you career-wise? And obviously, you've got a lovely family and Maureen, your wife. Having gone through all this and coming to this country, I believe that my strength and my wanting to survive made a difference to my life. And I have been in, I've been uh, through many things before I got to this country. So I had to prove to myself that I can achieve things in this country, which I have done through the hotel business, through my private life, through being a magistrate for many years, through helping the Metropolitan Police in various guises. And of course, eventually I was Absolutely amazed when I was recognized by Her Late Majesty the Queen, having been given the MBE in the 2020 uh, New Year's Honours for services to Holocaust education and commemoration. And I will continue doing what I can. And who did you receive the MBE from? Well, it was Princess Anne. It was in Windsor. It was a very interesting meeting. I was one of 40 people getting the uh, medals. And by the time she got to me, she got a bit uh, fed up, I think, because she had too many people. And uh, she was very nice. She asked me a few questions. And it was a wonderful occasion. Talking about royalty, 25 of our survivors were photographed. And all these photos were exhibited next to the Holocaust uh, exhibition, which just opened in the, in the Imperial War Museum. And I was asked to be one of three people to represent the 25 survivors, when VIPs were coming to look at and a lot of press and so on. And one day I was asked to go there and stand in front of my photo with my teddy and with my wife, because a VIP is coming and wants to talk to the three of us. And it was Kate who came along, Duchess Cambridge, and she was wonderful. And when she saw the teddy, both on the photo and with me, she could not stop asking questions about how wonderful and how she's going to talk to her children about it. And eventually they had to drag her away from me because she was enjoying our conversations. Oh, I bet she was. And of course, she's launched this big campaign now about That's how right. the early years are so important from a baby to five. And That's right. gosh, you look at your early years, John, and what you came through when you were exactly. just four years old. Exactly. I'd just like to end with a a final ranking thought, if I may, I'm just looking at your beautiful black and white photograph. You're holding your teddy in front of you and he's captured you well, as he does beautifully. What did Rankin say when he heard your story before he started shooting your photograph? First of all, he couldn't believe what I have gone through. Secondly, he said he was honoured to have me there, which I found very embarrassing. But that's what he said. Well, I'm going to embarrass you because I'm honoured. To, not that I'm ranking, obviously, but I'm honoured to have come to your home today and have the privilege of spending a little bit of time with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I know it's difficult to tell a story in a podcast length, 
but you've done that very well indeed. And I really hope that you continue doing your talks. And I'd love you to come to my son's school if you ever would and, and tell him and his classmates your story, because it's such an important story to tell. And I'm really glad that Britain worked out for you and that you've got a lovely family and provided some happiness. You're incredible. Well, thank you for listening to me. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Holocaust survivor John Haidu, a survivor of the Holocaust in Hungary, talking about his life and memories of some very dark days and arriving in the UK here as a refugee, having left everything he knew behind, except obviously his teddy, which is sitting here on his dining room table right now. John's book, Life in Two Countries, is available online. And again, I'm looking at the book now. It's a very small book, but very poignant and uh, full of John's memories and well worth a read. Download our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another inspiring guest. Bye for now.